how did the EPC get started? And well, how did the EPC get started as an independent think tank? Because it did have a, a precursor, of course. I'd start off by saying a little bit about the precursor to the precursor. That mm -hmm. is to say, I came to Brussels in end of 74, beginning of 75, just after accession, Ireland, the UK, Denmark, and Norway, but that wasn't ratified uh, subsequently in a referendum there. And frankly, during the subsequent years, apart from the enlargement, which did create some shockwaves and some awareness that the union was marking time and not, as it were, moving forward and developing a response to a changing world. Those were the years that became known as Eurosclerosis, in which uh, subsequently people felt that opportunities were missed and challenges not taken up and, and responded to. That all changed, frankly, with the presidency of Jacques Delors. The presidency of Jacques Delors both created and coincided with a number of very, very specific clear objectives, the most important of which probably at that time was the creation of the single market, which had, by the way, implications that went far beyond what was originally expected or understood, which accounts in a way for the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's subsequent expression of dismay at how even British commissioners had gone native in Brussels, as she charmingly put it. So suddenly there was a jolt to the intellectual atmosphere, the public awareness, not least within Brussels and within the structures of, of the community about things changing. The world was beginning to change. Subsequent developments, of course, included the goal of a, a single currency. So what was hitherto a rather constrained technical European debate, which is what I would characterize it as for the previous decade and a half, that suddenly there was a, a desire for debate, discussion, greater understanding. Now, there weren't really many facilities or opportunities available for not just, uh, as it were, the institutions and the people who worked for it, but the growing number of organizations, business, trade union, social, regional, etc., in Brussels to get a handle on these debates, to get a better understanding of them, uh, to have some input. So all of that suddenly was beginning to develop. And that coincided with the three of us, I say, the founders at the time, Max Konstam, Stanley Krasik and myself, found ourselves for a variety of reasons coming to the view that something needed to be done. Most influential was Max, who, of course, you know his history, a close collaborator with Jean Monnet. He kind of incorporated in his being the history of the European Union and its development. Stanley Krasik, coming from the business point of view, was aware that even big companies and professional players in the game were felt unsighted, ill-informed, at any rate unclear, not so much about what was happening, but what the direction of travel was likely to be and what the issues and choices were. And myself, well, I'd had a lot of experience as a journalist, and I became hyper-conscious of the fact that the communications between the European Union institutions as a whole and the European public were pretty lamentable, uh, technocratic, and not picking up on the more fundamental questioning that was beginning to take place in public opinion at that time. So all of these things came together, and to cut a long story short, Stanley 
Prusik, who had his own business consultancy, created Belmont EP, European Policy Centre, as a kind of chrysalis to see if something more significant could be grown out of it. I mean, we were a handful of people in a tiny office near the Commission, above an Irish pub, Many people thought amusing at the time for people studying or developing serious debates on issues. And that was the the pre-official launch phase of, of the EPC, which developed subsequently. And could you maybe tell us a little bit more about those first few days or how exactly that idea originated? I mean, am I imagining you getting together you know, over lunches or, you know, over time? Or did the idea spring to you all of a sudden or? It was over time, Rebecca, to be honest. It, I'd love to say that we had a very clever plan and a brilliant strategy, which was unveiled over, over the subsequent period. No, no. What happened was that it became clear that we needed a structure that would accommodate these, as it were, non-institutional players that were everywhere developing and expanding in Brussels. Initially, Stanley's natural thinking was to open it out to the business community. That was one important area. A handful of companies initially, but they started to grow quite significantly. But then we became aware that the social organizations, the NGOs, the regional bodies, who you might say were part of the system, nonetheless, they too were beginning to open offices from not just the member states, they always existed diplomatically, but the sub-national regional bodies. And then came a variety of other organizations that we had to sort of structure something that would accommodate a membership with certain rights, with access to events. And that quickly, it became clear that internal resources alone would not be sufficient to sustain these. So after the formal launch of the EPC, well, it coincided with a period of quite dramatic growth in membership, and we had to provide facilities for those members. Now, those, some of those facilities were in the publication form, but we also had a range of events, regular meetings for specific groups and for members as a whole, particularly after big moments in the EU calendar. Heads of government meeting were the most obvious ones, meetings of the European Council. Uh, and a lot of my work, I used to travel with the heads of government, travel to the summits, travel to the foreign ministers' meetings. I had been doing that for many years anyway as a European editor of The Guardian. So that enabled me to give regular reports within hours of those summits. And a lot of my time is spent on finding my way back to Brussels from fairly far-flung places where the summits were held. And all the member states, diplomats, and of non-member states, all provided an important forum to hear the first reports of what had been decided or not decided and what it meant and so on. And then as soon as I got back, so I did the ambassadors and then the regions and the social groups, they would come in another group and the business community and so on. So there were those and there were more regular in-between summits. There were We had important speakers from the different institutions or from the candidate member states, enlargement being ever greater dimension of what was going on. So around the EPC, there was a huge amount of activity. Sometimes, you know, uh, the organization to support it was pretty minimal. And it became clear that we needed a more permanent form of funding. And here, the arrival uh, after Stanley's 
very sad illness and his subsequent death, Max and I were very pleased to bring Howell Kerry Jones, uh, who's been very senior commission official, to chair the organization as sort of chief executive. And through that opening, the relationship with the King Baudouin Foundation and the other foundations began to develop and gradually grew. And once the structured relationship with the foundations had been worked and uh, a budgetary strategy, which was based both upon the membership revenues that we had, which were considerable over time from what they were at the very beginning, which was basically Stanley subsidized the sort of secretarial operation and the rest of us worked for a a penny and a whistle, but that changed over time. So it was very small scale, but it grew significantly, at least in the standards of that, before the time that I I retired back to London. You already mentioned your co-founders, Stanley Krosig and Max Konstam, and the fact that Stanley came from it from a more business perspective, that Max was very much ingrained into the political side of things. You came from a more journalistic communications perspective. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about them since, of course, unfortunately, they're not with us anymore? Well, as I say, undoubtedly, the father figure, if you call it that, was Max. Max was a, a truly extraordinary man. I mean, you know his personal history. He came very close to being executed by the Gestapo during the war uh, in reprisals for actions by the Dutch resistance. And a nurse he met uh, who was of Irish background and Dutch helped him get out and he married her underground and subsequently Queen Wilhelmina heard about this and organized a a proper wedding for Max and so on. So there was a, a lot of story and he always could place the problems that the community faced and boy did they face problems conflicts divisions etc in a, a broader context in time he had a command of the longer term implications of what is being done or what is not being done and should be done he he could see analogies in the longer term history of europe's development and he was very clear that we had a mission and the mission was not just to be a neutral observer of things but to have a vocation to pursue the concept of a union uh, ultimately a what Jacques Delors called un communauté fédéralisant, a federalizing rather than federalist community, because that implied a fixed and finished destination. So he was the, the conscience, if you like, the philosopher, and often with very practical ideas and context. Stanley was very different. Stanley came from a business community. He had a very clear understanding that the horizon of the economic world in Europe was changing, and this was going to have profound impacts on the business community. And the business community were perhaps quicker than other constituents of the European Union to organize themselves in Brussels, both to understand what was happening and to influence or maybe even seek to shape what was happening. So he understood that, but it became clear that our initial framework, which was a hangover from consultancy moving into being a think tank, required more fundamental changes of structure and relationship. And he he fully accepted that. So they were not at different ends of the spectrum, but they they had different experiences, both of which were relevant to the rather messy world of reality around us. 
I believe also that Marx was a historian, no? Yes. His father was a close collaborator with Albert Einstein. He was a theoretical physicist. Uh, I hadn't realized that till I, sometime after I met Max, actually, it came out in some discussion. But Max was very much of that post-war generation. You know, he had experiences that neither Stanley or I had ever had. It was a link with the past that was a, it was a kind of guide to where we should be going. Not that he said, this is what you must do. He, you know, that was never his style. I must tell you a very funny story about traveling to London with Jean and to talk to the post-war Labour government about the plans to begin constructing some kind of European, they didn't call it community at the time, but some kind of more united Europe. And Max said to Monet, well, this is fatal. The British will not agree. You know, they're immediately after the war. They still think they're a great world power and so on. Anyway, they arrived at the old London airport doesn't exist anymore, and they were official guests, so they were very politely received. And the man stamping their passport said to Jean Monnet, welcome, Mr. Monet, you're most welcome here, and everybody will be very pleased to hear what you've got to say. Monet turned to Max and said, they are Max wasn't as negative as you said. And then this man added a question. He said, well, just one question, Monsieur Monet. If we were to join this new Europe, would there be arrangements to allow us to leave if we changed our mind in future. So <laughs> Max then turned to Monet and said, mm, maybe I wasn't so wrong. <laughs> wow, that is quite a vision into the future that man had. <laughs> Before that, or earlier, you already set the scene a little bit of where the EU was exactly at the time. There was the single market. You mentioned something also called eurosclerosis. Am I saying that correctly? Eurosclerosis. Sclerosis, yes. yes. <laughs> meant a kind of a rather stuck, like um, underdeveloped entity and facing challenges that it increasingly urgently needed mm. to respond to and, and to change. So what was the, the focus of the EPC then in its first years of operations? What did it really want to achieve at that point in time? Basically to provide a much clearer and more consistent picture of what was going on. Uh, we were not bound by the formal constraints of the institutions. So it was partly reportage and partly judgment and partly advocacy. The advocacy was very much related to I mean, the preparations for the single currency. We understood that a monetary union that didn't become an economic union would in the end face insuperable problems. We supported enlargement and All of this was taking place at a quite dramatic pace of enlargement following uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that happened subsequently, uh, which I saw close to because I traveled with the law quite extensively. This is my pre-EPC days through Eastern Europe in the immediate aftermath of that. And, and I could see that these countries were going to head for Europe and rather more quickly than perhaps a lot of people back in Brussels assume. Then the issues about widening and deepening. How do you balance one without negating the other? Those were the kind of issues that were discussed. And then, of course, the single currency decision, EMU as it's called, was immense. That was an earthquake, the full implications of which were not clear even at the time, but have become much clearer since. And that is continuing. And the work that you and your colleagues are doing is still understanding and seeking to improve the fundamental economy of an integrated union. So those things were prefigured in the debates that we're talking about. And we felt that this, everything was accelerating. It might seem in retrospect, it wasn't all that fast, but there was a sense of events beneath our feet accelerating. And the EPC, I think, did make 
an impact because, and this is an important point for what happened subsequently, that to understand and react is one thing, but to work intellectually to deepen a policy appreciation in its complexity is a different timescale. If you see what I mean, there, there are, we were operating two different timescales. Lack of resources or initially very limited resources meant that we expanded the EPC and numbers of very talented young scholars and academics came to work for us. But one of the very heartening things that one could sees in EPC today is that that resource has immensely increased and has widened and deepened. So we were at an earlier phase of development, but we had people who came through the EPC and some of them remain even to this day. I know Amanda is still very much with you and uh, my dear secretary Maral is still there. There used to be many more, <laughs> but time is time. So all of that was beginning and we were very much aware that on some issues we were skating on thin ice intellectually and we needed to draw on greater resources, deeper expertise in more and more areas. And I would say that was the big challenge which uh, the work with the foundations began to produce in the time at which I retired. What I'm very curious about is what did working at EPC mean in those days and how did you achieve impact? Because today we work through online Zoom meetings, we have Twitter, we have social media, we have mass mailing. I mean, we still have the events, of course, but you know, around that time, 1997, the internet was just making the introduction, I think, to the wider public. There was a whole communications revolution going on. So I was wondering, on that cusp, on that transition, how did you make an impact, really, at that time as a think tank? Yes, I mean, you're quite right. All of that was only beginning, mm -hmm. only beginning. And uh, some of us were slower than others uh, to fully understand what was being opened up and the transformation in the world of communication that we've seen and that you live and work in. It was only really beginning. We had one asset. I suspect that the international media was more numerous in Brussels. I think it got up to maybe 2,000 or so, 3,000 accredited correspondents. We had a kind of, on our doorstep, media access. I believe it's much more contracted now because so much more can be done at distance. And it's done by other means. You've mentioned the Zooms, and I regularly try and attend the Zooms. So many, I only probably managed to get a small number of them. But <laughs> that, that was something, if, you'd, if you had suggested we did that 25 years ago, I don't know what we would have said. We wouldn't have understood in any sense the potential was opening up. So what we had, though, was um, a massive set of channels going out to all the member states' media through Brussels and a large part of the world, the non-EU world, were there. So it, it wasn't as bereft of communication as it might look, but it, it's nothing compared to what you've got available today. Although I wonder whether something has not been lost inevitably with COVID. I used to think addressing the ambassadors, the permanent representatives and the, of the member states and the ambassadors whose delegations were accredited as members of the, of the EPC, itself was sometimes a newsworthy occasion. It produced debates and responses which might have been more expected to be in the council chamber than at an EPC event. Exaggerate slightly, but, but so there were possibilities of having an impact, but certainly on scale now, neither the research 
facilities that the EPC has today, nor the, the access through the internet that did not exist. It was just barely beginning. And this is a bit of a broader question, but, you know, we hear a lot of talk now about what's happening in, U in Ukraine and with Russia that a new era has dawned in Europe and that a lot of people are referring back to Francis Fukuyama's end of history sentence and the idea that in the 90s and maybe also around the time that the EPC started, there was this belief that democracy and the multilateral order would prevail Is that true? I mean, you were, you know, you were working around that time. Was was that true? Was that the zeitgeist at the moment? It was a bit the zeitgeist at the beginning. Max used to quote Jean Monnet as saying, uh, European integration it will be a consequence of the fact of having to face problems and itself will only be a stage in a development global governor. There was a kind of belief that there was something not painlessly inevitable, but that the trend of history was pointing very much in that direction. And to some extent, it was justified. The growth of the UN and the multilateral institutions, which took place even during the, the years of Eurosclerosis, are significant. But it's clear today that there are massive challenges to those mm. assumptions, and they can no longer be taken as in any way determinant of the direction of events. One of them is populism, and specifically right-wing populism, in my view, in its different forms, is becoming a significant political player. It's possible that a Trump figure could be president of the United States. Again, Trump or a Trump figure. What would that do to NATO? What would that do to the transatlantic relationship? You have a bizarre love affair between... Putin fans and populist fans, again, very right wing, some of them. I mean, it's a, and Moscow and the populist right was not what we understood during the Cold War. There were different links and different polarizations. So all of that is very concerning. On the other hand, I think that it's by no means inevitable that it disintegrates. I think the world has got already too much to lose by assuming that the thing is, is heading in a, in a fatalistic direction. But you're right. It's the underlying tension that, that exists, which is one reason why I believe that the EU needs more visible collective democratic political life. It's not that it doesn't exist. It is that it is not either fully visible and it doesn't fully exist. If you look back to those early days and what you hoped to achieve with the EPC, do you feel that, you know, somehow you succeeded or maybe in some ways didn't succeed? Yeah, well, both really. There are, there are some things that we did which were clearly needed and immensely popular. The fact that the EPC could reach constituencies, even among the, the accredited organizations, on a scale that they regarded their EPC membership and the events that it offered as something the big missions would say, you're EPC for this purpose, she's EPC for that purpose, and so it brought together people whose responses were part of the diplomatic intercourse among and between member states and non-member states. So that's one. Of course, what was frustrating was that the things that we wanted to see come out of the institutions came out 
from our point of view, too slowly, too uncertainly, sometimes inconsistently with other things. But that's that's life. And perhaps it was an unrealistic assessment sometimes that we had of what more could have been done and should have been done. But we didn't regard ourselves as impartial academics untouched by the value judgments involved in being in the process of European integration. We were engagé. We weren't engagé from a strictly narrow political or economic point of view, but engagé, we certainly were. So there was a tension there. There was a, uh, there were disappointments as well as some successes, maybe. And how then do you look at the EPC now? Does it still look and feel familiar or is it really light years away from what you've started? Well, I remember some years ago before the uh, the dreadful COVID arrived, uh, being in Brussels for governing council meeting or whatever it was at the time, I can't remember. And our old offices had moved to what were then completely new offices. And, and to me, and I, I was with uh, Howell at the time, Stanley, of course, and Max, uh, we'd lost both of them at that stage. We couldn't believe the numbers of people that were at work and the number of individuals, people we were introduced to and met sometimes for the first time. That came as not a shock, but a kind of shock, a kind of shock that, that it was on a scale that we might have dreamt about, but certainly had not enjoyed during those years. On the other hand, the debates I found that I've been involved with through the EPC uh, at those meetings were much the same, were much the same. I mean, there are new questions all the time. God, in the midst of this terrible war, there are transformative things. The climate is transformative. The whole question about the structures of international governance and its relationship with European governance are changing before our eyes. And so that was familiar. Not the specific issues, but the kind of discussions were still familiar. So it was a mixture of, my God, it's changed, to, my God, it's still, you know, similar issues. Yeah. And maybe finally, what do you hope for the, for the EPC in the future, for the next 25 years, perhaps? Well, I hope for a continued active engagement to help us all understand what are the new issues or the new implications of old issues, to have us clear view of where, in the view of the centre, we should be going, even if we are not always going, or subject to contradictory pressures and forces and so on. And I would like to see that. Of course, the EPC's fate is necessarily caught up in what the future of the union itself is. Mm -hmm. And we have grounds for both some optimism, but a lot of worry. And the scale of the challenges are dwarfing even those we thought were massive changes in the post-Cold War era, and they were in their time transformative. There are now new, totally different transformative issues, which your generation has to struggle, A, to understand, B, to work out what the union is about. I'm encouraged, just finally say this, looking at the direction of travel of the union, that the kind of way in which the economic integration has accelerated. Things that were considered taboo even after the single currency was created at the level of fiscal transfers, uh, etc., are hugely impressive. But of course, they're always outpaced by the scale of the challenges that are facing. So the Convention on the Future of Europe, you know, it will be very important. I would like to see more attention paid to how the politics 
of the European Union can be conducted more meaningfully at a European level. I'd like to see the emergence out of the different parties at national level, European parties fighting each other, because I don't believe in some magic consensus, fighting for democratic power. The link between power and the European institutions is closer than it was, but it's still too distant. So the choice I'm hopelessly unreconstructed radical who wants the people's choice to be more visibly determinant.